Okay, if you would take your Bible this afternoon and turn to Colossians chapter 1 again. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll just read verse 18 as we continue in our study in the authority of the Lord's church. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So we're going to continue looking at the authority of the Lord's church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your word. Pray, Father, that you give us wisdom into this subject and help me as I preach to teach to declare it plainly and give us understanding in thy truth for our good and for thy glory. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone that doesn't have both pages the handouts? And uh, excuse me for that, you know, handmade graph, but I don't know how to do that on computer. So I did it on by hand. But anyway, and the copier still copies it. So uh, if anybody doesn't have this, two pages. Anyway, so what we've been looking at is establishing uh, what is a New Testament church with authority by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 18 last week. about, And really we come to the conclusion that everything, salvation, understanding of God, growth, uh, all these things, Christ is the central, is central to everything, to the church. And of course, he concludes this passage by saying that he is the head of the body, the church. So a church is a body of Christ, and a body is that which makes life visible. Your body makes you visible. Your body is, you know... uh, you are more than a body. You're a, you're a soul. You're a spirit. Those things are invisible. That is the real you. The soul and spirit is the real you. But the body is what makes you visible. It's what we see. And, of course, as we think about a church, uh, the body is what makes a church visible. And it's, so it's made up of people. And, and, of course, 1 Corinthians describes this in chapter 12. We'll look at that a little bit later. But, but anyway, uh, as we think about this... Um, Part two, uh, there's some things here I want to just review that was common practice of the early churches. Uh, First of all, A, they preached repentance and faith as John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles. This was their message. Repentance and faith. You know, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene, says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Peter says to the Jews, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and then Acts 20, 21, Paul says that he preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how salvation comes. You know, 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. You know, the, the modern soul-winning emphasis, you forget about repentance because it's negative. Turns people away. It offends people. However, it's a very important Bible doctrine. And Jesus said, Except you repent, you shall likewise perish. Now, one of the things that I've heard over the years, 
And I've had people say this to me, well, John didn't preach repentance. The word repentance is not used in the book of John. However, who wrote Revelation? Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 21. Revelation 2 and verse 21 says, And I gave her space to what? Repent of her fornication. And she repented not. In chapter 16, and these aren't the only places in the book of Revelation. This is most of them, but not all of them. Chapter 16, verse 9, says, And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Verse 11, And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. So John preached repentance. Um, second thing we see is, so that was the message that was practiced and preached by all uh, in the early churches. The second thing we see is, letter B, there was no church-state relationship. Uh, each church governed itself. They had authority from the Lord Jesus Christ to receive, and we looked at this last week, to receive or reject members. They, they had the authority to dismiss membership or receive into membership. Matthew 18, 15 through 18 tells us. And there was no church-state relationship. Uh, let us see, they all believed in soul liberty. No one was coerced. There was no force of the sword or punishment or physical punishment of heretics. I mean, if you want to believe heresies, that's your right and that's your choice. Bible-believing Christians never persecuted those who disagreed with them. They did defend themselves at times, but they never persecuted There are Christians who persecuted, but not Bible-believing Christians. They believe in soul liberty. Um, As we're going to see, that came later, and and we'll talk about that. Uh, Baptism, across the board, was by dipping or immersion, and it was the door into church membership. And Peter talked about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says, In the same day there was added to the church. So, they were added to the church there by baptism. Of course, 1 Corinthians 12, or 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I think it is, talks about, yeah, for as the body is one, or for by one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. And this chapter defines what the body is in verse 27 where it says ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. So, so baptism was the door uh, into church membership. And again, in fact, if you study church history, baptism by immersion was practiced by almost everyone up until the 1300s. There were some, some, even a lot of Catholics did it by immersion up until then. Um, I remember Joel Smith. Was it Joel Smith? Joel Smith that had the Bible collection. Yeah. Anyway, he was a Bible historian, hardcore Calvinist too. And um, I heard him preach a couple of times, and he said he was on a tour in Israel years ago, 
and they were touring churches in Israel, early churches uh, sites. And he said, uh, he said to the tour guide, he said, "Is it not true that every church had a baptismal pool in it that's been filled in?" And he said, "Yes, it is true." See that later on they filled them in, but originally they all, all baptized by immersion. That was the common practice of the early churches. They all believed that Jesus began or built the first church in Matthew 16. So, uh, so they you know they believed that you know the church doctrine members prepared under God sent authorized man. We talked about just a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist, and so John prepared the materials, and Jesus started the first church. He gathered his disciples together who became members of his church. Matthew 5 through 7 talks about discipleship. Uh, Matthew 18 talks about church discipline. Matthew 26, we have a Lord's Supper, things that are done in a church. Uh, in John 21, we have a pastor appointed to replace his first pastor, who was Jesus. So Peter was appointed to be a pastor. All these things were done before Pentecost. There was a business meeting in Acts chapter 1, before Pentecost. All things that are done in churches. So we believe the church began uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, all, all the early churches believed in a visible, local, only church. No universal or Catholic church. And there's a lot of scriptures here that we could look at. And, you know, Acts 2.47 says, Then there were added unto them. So there was added to the church membership. The church membership is given to us in Acts chapter 1. It was 120. Um, there was no Catholic or universal or universal or invisible. The word actually invisible, that title was actually invented, most believed, by Luther. He didn't want to call it Catholic or universal, so he called it invisible. Uh, and what it is is a two-tier church theory. So you have a local church and you have an invisible one. But the authority is usually with the invisible, and it takes away from the authority of the local church. Uh, there are three metaphors in the New Testament uh, for a church. Body, a building, and a bride. Now, all of those metaphors are visible. All of those metaphors are organized. You know, a, a body is the organization of different parts. Arms, legs, heart, lungs, head, you know, different parts. A building is the same way. It's organized out of different parts. There's, there's lumber, there's two by fours, two by sixes, um, you know, one by four flooring and, you know, concrete blocks and cement mortar and windows and all those things are parts of the whole, but it is one building. And a bride is also organized. Uh, it's, you know, spouse to one husband and, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, he tells the Corinthian church, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So, again, it, you know, it, there's not such thing as an invisible or a universal bride. Uh, it's a bride is to remain spiritually and doctrinally pure or chaste. So these are all metaphors that speak of a local church. And that was the only belief uh, for the first few hundred years of church history. Now, uh, as I mentioned, I started to go into this a little bit last week. But So during this time, uh, even in the first century, there's 
errors starting to creep in. Um, and let's look at some of these. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. We see that some of the, the writers of the New Testament uh, address this idea of that there's errors already being taught and in some places practiced in the early churches. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, Paul says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So this is, this is by 60 A.D., somewhere around there, this letter was written. And so Paul said already there's people that are corrupting the word of God. You know, the Judaizers that followed him around were corrupting the gospel. And, and there's, of course, there were agnostics on the scene as well. Uh, he writes to Galatia, the churches of Galatia. It was, Galatia was an area. It wasn't a city. It was like an area. Uh, maybe comparable to a county or, or um, you know, an eastern part of a state or something like that. And, and in Galatians 1, verse 6, he said, I marvel that you're so removed, so soon removed, from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another but there will be some that trouble you who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And, and so, so again, he writes to these, these churches. And uh, when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 1 through 3, he's, he, he's prophesying here, or he's predicting something that is going to happen. The, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, given heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hard iron, forbidding to marry. Does that sound familiar? We'll see when that comes about. Forbidding to marry, uh, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So, there, so there's some things he says is gonna, that is, that is going to come in the future. Uh, Peter also speaks of this in Second uh, Peter one, uh, two, Second Peter chapter two, in verse one. Through three, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So, so that when he's saying denying the Lord, they're denying the deity. That they're, what they're doing is denying that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So he says, there's going to be these that very soon that are going to deny. And within the second century, there were those that was called Arianism started to rise up in some of the churches teaching that Jesus was not eternal, that he was a created being or, or, or you know, or, or uh, the son of God that came later after the father. And so he was not equal with God. And, and um, by the way, that, that, that heresy is still with us. It's called Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they teach. Jesus is a God, John 1.1. 1, 1. That's, that's how they define him. So anyway, and, and they're going to bring upon themselves swift destruction. Many shall follow their pernicious ways by rave, reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and of damnation slumbereth not. So, uh, again, verse 3 talks about, you know, feigned, they're going to be false words, and they're going to make merchandise. They're going to turn Christianity, quote-unquote, into a means of making money. That did take very long for it to start happening, as we shall see. First uh, John. John spoke of this. First John chapter 4. Beloved, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then Jude, verse 3 and 4, Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needed for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. So, so the truth was once delivered. It does not change. It's an eternal truth. However, there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness and in denying the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. So again, here's a denial of the Lordship of Christ. And then you go to the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and it names errors that are already being taught. And this, most historians say this was written 96 A.D. So before 100 A.D., and here's the things that are addressed by our Lord that is, that is present, some doctrines that are present in the churches at that time. Chapter 2, verse... Uh, uh, for sake of time, I won't read it all. Verse 5, this is the church at Ephesus. It says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first works. Uh, of course, I should have started at verse 4. Nevertheless, I somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So if this church continued on its path, it was going to cease to be a New Testament church with Christ's authority. And, and then he names some things. Verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the, dica, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's one good thing i got to say about you. You hate Nicolaitanism. Now, if you drop down to chapter 2 and verse... Uh, I had it wrote down, I thought, but I don't see it. Uh, I'm sorry. Verse 15, 14, 15. 14, 15. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for hire. So merchandise. Think of Peter's prophecy. Uh, before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now this word Nicolaitans means conquerors of the people. And it speaks of a clerical hierarchy. So what you have is pastors that are starting to exalt themselves or churches that are exalting their pastors and beginning to be given or take authority over churches. 
Church is. Not just church. Church is. Uh, and God says, I hate it. I hate it. You know, one of the, com- the common practice when, in Anabaptist and Baptist churches was uh, people often called the pastor, you know, brother so-and-so. Or they called him pastor. But, you know, in denominationalism, in popery, you know, they have titles. Pope, cardinal, father. And Jesus, what does Jesus say about calling somebody your father who's not your father? He said, call no man on earth your father. I mean, that's, that's derogatory to call a man who's not your biological father, father, is, is to blaspheme God. It's to put man on equal with God. And so that, and that's what he meant there. So don't do that. So these are the errors that were creeping, creeping in with what we call church fathers. Um, church fathers. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people like to quote church fathers. I do not like to quote church fathers because, in my opinion, they're some of the worst heretics in history. Uh, it's where heresy started. But anyway, if you have a timeline, uh, timeline, that timeline, that fancy timeline you had, on the front it should say, church that Jesus built, Christ is the head, on the left side, and the church that man built, the Roman Catholic, on the right side. And so you have two timelines here. Um, I'm sorry. No, Church of Jesus Christ, the line of Baptist heritage. That's the first page. I should have marked page one, page two. Anyway, and then uh, you have down a little lower on the opposite side, the uh, head uh, of the church, Pope, Vicar of Christ. That's the first page. Sorry. Anyway, so under the timeline there, you have Jesus Christ who started the church, his church, and you have the apostles in 100 A.D., and then, and then you have the church fathers, and I named some of them, not all of them, but many of them, quite a few of them. And let me just give you some of the doctrines that they taught, some of the errors that were already starting to be taught within the first century. Canatius, uh, he was a bishop at Antioch, which was a, with the church that sent out Paul and Barnabas. Uh, but anyway... Uh, he taught that all churches are part of one universal church. And he died in 110 A.D. Uh, this, I'm getting this out of uh, David Cloud's O Timothy. It's uh, volume 25, issue 6, June 2008. But anyway, uh, he also claimed that a church does not have authority to baptize or conduct the Lord's Supper unless it has a bishop. So, so there he's exalting a bishop, which is another name for pastor or elder, over the people. Uh, so the, there, there's some seeds of error being taught there. Uh, Justin Martyr, was, uh, he uh, lived from 100 to 165 A.D. Uh, he interpreted scriptures allegorically and mystically. Uh, he helped develop the idea of a middle, middle state after death. You know, all these guys were saved out of paganism, so they, they kind of adopted some of their paganistic practices. And, of course, that middle state leads to what? Purgatory. That's where it ended up. Irenaeus, 125 to 202, he was a pastor in, in Lyons, France. 
Uh, he supported the authority of the bishop as a ruler over many churches. So there you have Nicolaitanism and, and uh, um, uh, Clement. Uh, he headed an allegorizing school of Alexandria. This is a school that allegorized or, or, or uh, you know, didn't take the, what that means is they don't take the scriptures literally. He helped develop the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, that was 150 to 230. Tertullian, uh, Carthage, North Africa. And uh, uh, he believed that the bread of the Lord's Supper was Christ and worried that about dropping crumbs of it on the ground. So there again you have the, the teachings of transubstantiation uh, taught by the Catholic Church. He taught that widows who remained, who remarried committed fornication. Uh, he taught that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, he taught that Mary was the second Eve who by her obedience remedied the disobedience of the first Eve. And so what you're, what you're seeing is seeds of Roman Catholic Church doctrine. Uh, Cyprian uh, died in 258. He was tyrannical and wealthy. He wrote against the Novatian churches, and the Novatians were those who were some of those who were faithful to the, to the Scriptures and to the Word of God, and he, he wrote against them. And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, degraded them. Uh, he, he uh, again, taught that bishops had authority over many churches and that all pastors must submit to them. Um, Origen, Origen's the greatest heretic, I think, that ever lived. Um, uh, just because just some of the, he had so many, so many strange teachings he denied the inspiration of Scripture, rejected the little history of the first uh, chapters of Genesis. Uh, he accepted infant baptism. He taught baptism of regeneration, salvation by works. He believed in a form of purgatory. Uh, he believed that men's souls are pre-existence and that stars and planets possibly have souls. Uh, he believed that Jesus was a created being, and, and so there you have the Roman Catholic or the. Uh, Jehovah's Witness teaching again. Uh, he denied the bodily resurrection of Christ, so he was agnostic. Uh, he allegorized the Bible, saying, this, quote, the scriptures have little use to those who understand them literally, unquote. I mean, he was really a heretic. I was, I would, my, my opinion is he was a lost man. Uh, and then one of his disciples was Eusebius of Caesarea, and he lived from 270 to 340, and uh, he collected the writings of Origen and promoted his teachings. And one of the things that Eusebius did was, was when Constantine joined the church and the state in the Roman Empire, and which laid the foundation for the Roman Catholic Church, he hired, it's believed he hired Eusebius to produce some Greek New Testaments. Frederick Nolan and other authorities have charged Eusebius with making many changes in the text of Scripture. There's a quotation here. Uh, Nolan says this, As it is thus apparent that Eusebius wanted not the power, so it may be shown that he wanted not the will to make those alterations of sacred text with which I have ventured to accuse him. Unquote. So, so many, there was many omissions made in these, these new versions of the Bible that were made for Constantine 
And it's really believed by many that these are the texts from which our modern versions come from. And Eusebius corrupted the Bible texts. So, so if you go there, you see there down a couple inches, there's Eusebius in the modern Bible versions, and Eusebius and Jerome and these uh, pastors of the churches at Rome, they joined with Constantine. You know, Constantine he saw this uh, cross in the sky and this, had this vision that said, you know, you're, you're to fight in this sign, the sign of the cross for victory and so on and so forth. So he embraced the church and gave it state sanction. And even there was money offered, gold coins offered, if you were baptized and joined churches during those days. And so the church and state united. And so you have these, really, that leave the line of the Church of Christ, and really what they start is the Roman Catholic Church um, or a state church where the church and the state become one. And so the head is no longer Christ. The head is the state. Or the head became the Pope. He's called the Vicar of Christ. And of course, Vicar, um, the word Vicar means, what did I do with it? The word vicar means in place of, place or substitute, one who performs the functions of another. You know, there's a Bible word for it too. It's called anti. Antichrist. That's what God calls it. You know, he may call himself the vicar of Christ, but God calls it Antichrist. So in 325 A.D., really you have the birth of this state church where the church unites with the state now it has state authority. And out of that will come the persecution of those faithful churches from the state churches that, that started during that time. Uh, and and uh, Jerome was called upon by Damascus, who was the bishop of Rome, in... Uh, uh, between 383 and 405 A.D. to produce a standard Latin Bible, which he did. And, and it's called the Latin Vulgate. It's a common name for it, meaning common. Now, Brutus Metzger, who was a critical text scholar, so-called, says that, quote, the Greek manuscripts used by Jerome apparently belong to the Alexandrian type text. So these are the texts that Eusebius prepared, came out of Alexander, Egypt, and, and, uh, and that's, the kind, that's the, the, what uh, Jerome used for his Catholic Bible. So these were the same, this means they're in the same family as those underlying of modern versions. So you know, the, the, the New International Version, the Good News from Modern Man, the, the New American Standard Bible, um, you know, and there's a whole list of all these Bible versions. The text they used was the Alexandrian-type text. Well, the text that the early churches used was called the received text. And, you know, I didn't make a line here for that, but 
those faithful churches continued to this day to use the receive text. You know, some people claim the Bible was lost until until the um, the eight was eighteen hundred. Tischendorf, who was a Catholic monk, was starting a fire in in. Uh, and I'm trying to remember. He was there was one one manuscript was found in a monastery in Egypt. The other one was found in the Vatican Library, and I think it was the one in the monastery in Egypt. So he was starting a fire, and he was you know getting some paper to start a fire. And he he and in the garbage can was this manuscript with golden edges, golden edging. And he said, "Oh, you know." And it's believed to be one of Eusebius's Bibles that he prepared for Constantine. And and then from that, you know, they said this was the oldest manuscript because because there are no originals, there are no originals of the received text. Uh, there are only copies. Because what happens to your Bible when you use it? It wears out. So they faithfully copied them over the years. And, and so, so they thought this was the oldest. And because they thought it was the oldest. And because they thought it was the shortest. That it was the closest to the original. Um, the oldest and the shortest means nothing. Um, Anyway, so all modern Bible versions come from that source. They come through heretics. Comes through heretics. And so Jerome printed this Bible for the Roman bishops. Uh, he was also deeply infected with false teaching. Uh, he taught the state of celibacy. What did Paul tell Timothy? Forbidding to marry. Forbidding to marry. Here you have it. Celibacy. There's an I was teaching celibacy, and this is by 405, before 400 A.D. They're teaching celibacy. Uh, he Jerome believed in the veneration of holy relics and the d- bones of dead Christians. So the worship of those things. He taught that Mary was a counterpart of Eve, as Christ was the counterpart of Adam, and that through her obedience, Mary became instrumental in helping to redeem the human race. Uh, Jerome justified the death penalty for heretics and, and so on. Uh, Ambrose was another one. He used uh, from 339-397, so again, within the first 400 years, allegorical, mystical method of Bible interpretation. Uh, Christians stood devoted to Mary. He believed the church had power to forgive sins. Church doesn't have power to forgive sins. Only Christ does. He believed the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice of Christ. So they're crucifying Christ every time they take the Lord's Supper. Um, Augustine, and here's the guy that really defined Roman Catholic doctrine. He lived from 354 to 430. Uh, uh, Of course, he's polluted with all the false doctrines of those before him. He was, first of all, a persecutor and the father of the doctrine of the persecution in the Catholic Church. Uh, the historian Neander observed that Augustine's teaching contains a germ of the whole system of spiritual despotism, intolerance, and persecution, even to the court of the Inquisition. He instigated persecutions against Bible-believing Donatists who were striving to maintain pure churches after their apostolic faith. And he interpreted Luke 14, 23, 
compel them to come in to mean that Christ required the churches to use force against heretics. So take your handgun and go round them up to bring them in. That's what they did. And if you didn't come in, well, they'd persecute you. Uh, father of all millennialism. He doesn't teach. He teaches there's no millennial reign of Christ. Uh, sacraments, or that means baptism and Lord's Supper, have saving grace. Uh, he was one of the fathers of infant baptism. He taught that Mary did not commit sin and promoted her to worship. He believed in purgatory. He accepted the doctrine of celibacy for priests. Uh, he exalted the authority of the church over that of the Bible. Uh, he, uh, let's see, he taught that God has preordained some to salvation and others for damnation, and that the grace of God is irresistible to the true elect. In other words, Calvinism did not originate with Calvin. He got it from Augustine, and Calvin said that himself. That doctrine of Calvinism came from Augustine. He taught the heresy of apostolic succession from Peter. So the popes are in apostolic succession uh, from Peter. Um, so these are the church fathers. So as you can see, you know, and, and of course at the Counts of Nicaea in 325 AD, this is really what most people credit the birth of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, where Constantine united the church with, with the state. And, you know, at some point, like origin here, I had them in a true line, but at some point they cut themselves off because they would have been, they would have been uh, their light removed because of, the, of their doctrines. So, so they were really precursors to this state church idea. And, and God describes this again in Revelation chapter 2. Look at verses 20 through 24. He, he, he says it's coming. It's already, it was already, some of these things were already being taught by 96 A.D., Revelation 2, 20 through 24. This is the church at Thyatira. It says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And what does the Roman Catholic Church present itself as? A woman. That's what it presents itself. And, and in uh, verse 21, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and will give unto every one of you according to your works." But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. So here you have these, these in the church of Thyatira who are, he calls them Jezebel, calling themselves prophetess, and seducing the servants of Christ, uh, you know, committing fornication, they're offering things, sacrifice to idols, and so on. And then if you go to chapter 17, he describes it in further detail. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, 
says, And there came one of the seven angels that had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, when it says sitteth upon many waters, it's not talking about sitting on the ocean. And I'll tell you why. Go to chapter, go to verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. So the word waters in verse 1 is not referring to physical or literal waters. It's talking about peoples, people groups, nations. And so it sits, it sits in authority over people and nations. And he describes it in further detail, and he calls it a whore. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made, been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names uh, of uh, blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. By the way, those are all colors of the Roman Catholic Church. And they picture themselves as a woman that rides a beast. This, you know, greatly ornate woman. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, this is the way God describes it. It's not the way the world looks at it. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of martyrs, of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered. You're John. John, we saw this. He wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore dost thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not shall stand out of the bottomless pit. The beasts are world, referring to world powers, and. And, and, and it says, And go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. This is referring to the Antichrist. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads and seven mountains are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. What is Rome referred to? The city of seven hills. This is not Babylon. This is Rome. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. Now, that starts with the king of Egypt and goes through Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, uh, the Roman Empire, and there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. There's seven in all. I think Assyrian was one of those. I didn't keep count there what I had, but anyway... And, and so one has fallen, one is, and the other is yet to come. The revived Roman Empire is yet to come. We believe it's the European Union will be the revived Roman Empire because that's really the, the area. Then it says, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh. So that would be the Antichrist, and goeth into perdition. And that's how it describes him in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Ten kings which thou sawest are ten kings, ten horns are ten kings which thou have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. So there's going to be a short time period there. I believe that's the tribulation period. 
These have one mind, shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. So the, the government side of the, this holy trinity, which is going to be Satan, going to energize the Antichrist, who's going to be the, the political ruler of the world. And I believe that the, the apostate religion, not just the Catholic Church, but all of its children, as we're going to see, it's got many children that, that broke off for a time or, or went astray for a time, but are now coming back into mama. And, and so this is apostate religion. Headed up, I believe, by the Catholic Church. It is the, the biggest, the largest, the wealthiest. It is the wealthiest organization on the face of the earth. By far. The wealthiest. And, and, but God's going to put it in the ten kings to hate this whore. And they're going to destroy her. And they're going to burn her with fire. Verse 16 says, For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and degree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Most people in our modern age do not understand the authority that the Catholic Church wielded in times past. King Henry, trying to remember, was it the eighth who had to go and kiss the King Henry the eighth, King of Germany? No, that's not King Henry the eighth. There was a King of Germany. Germany was one of the most powerful states or or nations during the Dark Ages. In some way, the king offended the Pope, and he required the king to pilgrimage to Rome in the winter on foot and kiss his toe or he would excommunicate him. And the power with which he wielded that was real because so many people were controlled. This was the Dark Ages and there wasn't, there wasn't uh, uh, Bibles available because they suppressed all education. You know, just like our, 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 our government and our elite, the elite, the, the, the left, are trying to dub down education. They want people to be illiterate. They don't want you to get real information. They're trying to control the information so they can keep you uh, uninformed. That's what the Catholic Church did. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. And so these people didn't, all they knew was Catholicism. And all they knew was, if we offend the Catholic Church, we say anything against the Pope, we're going to end up in the... Guillotine. That's the way it was. So, the Catholic Pope would say, if he excommunicated a, a king, that meant anybody would be rewarded who assassinated him. You'd be assured of eternal life if you assassinated the king. And it would cause any insubordinates in his kingdom to rise up. It was a, see, the Catholic Church controlled the world, the known world at that time. 
uh, through its priests and bishops and cardinals and all that. And, and you know, he, it, when it says it reigned over the kings of the earth, it reigned over the kings of the earth. And so, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the Roman Catholic Church. It's a church whose head is not Christ. It's the Pope. It's man. It's a man. So they call itself a church, but it's not. Now see, we're out of time. And as you see in your timeline there, and we'll pick up here next week, but, you know, the Catholic Church, if you study Catholic history, it is a sordid, immoral um, mess. At one time, there were two popes. No, one time there were three popes rivaling each other. I mean, you talk about immorality. If you ever get a chance, you ought to read a book called 50 Years in the Church of Rome by Charles Chiniqui. Charles Chiniqui was a Catholic priest for 50 years. No, Catholic priest for, I forget how many. Anyway, he was till, until he was 50, when he understood the gospel and he got saved, and, and he was actually a moral man, and he thought, it, it, because he saw, and he was in the 1800s, and he thought, because of the immorality at the Catholic priest, the drunkenness and the immorality with the Catholic priest, he thought he'd get away from it, so he thought he'd go to a monastery. He went into the monastery, and he said it was worse in the monastery than it was outside. And, and those are some of the things that turned him. And they actually, the Catholic Church sued him and tried to ruin his name because he was trying to hold priests and those in authority over him accountable because they were thieves. And, and so he opposed them, and Abraham Lincoln defended him in a case, and he won the case, and he told Abraham Lincoln, they will kill you because that courtroom was filled with Jesuit priests. And he documents that it was the Catholic Church was the source of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Uh, the purpose was he was sent to Illinois to start a Catholic colony to colonize the West for the Catholic Church. And when he left the Catholic Church, when he started exposing the, the bishops for their immorality, he spoiled their design. And they hated him. They tried to kill him too. But anyway, he, he just, it just reveals to you the power and the deception of the Catholic Church. Uh, in 1054, there was a split, and you had the Eastern Orthodox Church started, which is not much different, but um, it's called the Eastern Orthodox Church. It remains to this day. It's not real large. But, but anyway, so, so next week we'll pick up here. But so now you have, okay, now you have false churches that are not authorized by Christ. And you still have the line of the true churches that still are under Christ's authority. And so next week we'll pick up there and start at the Reformation and see how it comes up to modern day. And where many of the churches that are in our world today, their authority goes back to, their lineage goes back to the Pope. And not to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their roots. So, so there, you know, but God promised us the perpetuity of his churches, that there would always be true churches. You know, there are some, even Baptists, who call themselves Baptists today, that are saying Baptists come out of the Reformation. 
That is not true. It's not true. Now, we do have a heritage that goes all the way back to our Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. It comes with great price. Many died to preserve that lineage for us. And so we need to treasure that and hold fast to that faith.